Ephesians 2 verse 11. Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you, who once were far away, have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law and its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to those, or to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as a chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is God's word. Well, good morning. Uh, and uh, if you're visiting here this morning, uh, it's great to have you with us. And uh, uh, it's great to be here, isn't it? Uh, and to uh, celebrate uh, what God's done for us in Christ uh, and to think again this morning about uh, what the church is. Uh, over the last few weeks, we've been thinking about that. We've been thinking about the church. Uh, and two weeks ago, we kind of recalibrated our understanding uh, of what the church was uh, using the Bible. We uh, found that we ought to expect uh, both less from the church uh, because the church will always be a mixed church. The church, this side of Jesus' return, uh, will always be full of people who are true Christians and those who aren't. Uh, we also found that we ought to hope more for the church, that uh, because God is glorifying uh, himself through the church, we ought to hope for more uh, from the church as we see it. Uh, and last week, if you were here, we thought about the shape of gospel ministry. What does gospel ministry look like? Uh, well, we discovered that gospel ministry is cross and resurrection shaped. That is, uh, gospel ministry will nearly kill us, uh, but by God's grace, as it nearly kills us, people will catch a glimpse uh, of Christ and they will find life themselves. But this morning we're asking a question which maybe is more foundational than either of those things, which is, what is the church? You might think that would be, in fact, the place to start, but I thought, for reasons only known to myself, that this would be a better place to deal with it. And perhaps the best place in the whole Bible to try and come to grips with what the church is, is this passage here in Ephesians, which Will read for us a little moment ago. Nothing else 
really, I think, comes as close uh, or is as succinct as this passage in describing what the fundamental characteristic, what the fundamental nature of the church uh, is. Well, Paul begins this part of his letter to the Ephesian church, uh, oddly enough, by talking about national division. Uh, It seems like a strange place, doesn't it, to start uh, any discussion of the church by talking about national division. In verse 11, he says, Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope in the world. National division uh, is an odd place to start, but Paul isn't just talking about any national division, but he's talking about the national division between the people of Israel in the Old Testament and the rest of the world. Uh, The people of Israel in the Old Testament, before Christ came, the people of Israel were the people of God. Uh, They had the promises about redemption, Uh, they had the promises about the Messiah, Jesus. And so Paul is simply pointing out that uh, if you weren't a citizen in Israel, if you didn't have anything to do with that nation, then you wouldn't have known about God. You wouldn't have uh, known about God's promises in Jesus and so you would have been without hope and without God. In that sense, it wasn't uh, a hard and fast dividing line. There were people from outside that nation who joined themselves in. Uh, but Paul says that unless they, were, they did join themselves in, they were without God and without hope. So Paul's really just starting off by saying that every person who wasn't part of Israel was estranged from God, which might make you think then that the people in that nation were not estranged from God, that they, that they knew God, but Paul doesn't actually say that. In fact, it turns out that even Israel, the people of God, even, even those people needed to be reconciled to God. Uh, so in verse 15 he says, his purpose, God's purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. That is, both the Jews and everybody else to God through the cross. And then he goes on to say in verse 17, He, Jesus, came and preached peace to you who are far away, that is the Gentiles, everyone outside of Israel, and peace to those who were near, that is the Jews. In other words, both Jews and Gentiles needed to be reconciled to God. The Gentiles were far away and needed to be reconciled and the people of Israel were far away, were near, I should say, and needed to be reconciled as well. Uh, The exact nature of why they needed to be reconciled, the, the, the predicament that they were in, Paul has outlined earlier in the chapter, in the bit that we didn't read. So if you've got your Bible open still, have a look back to chapter 2 verse 1 where Paul says what the problem is. Why did they need to be reconciled to God? In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the rule of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest... We were by nature objects of wrath. So here's the problem that Paul is identifying. We are by nature utterly corrupt. 
By nature, by, by birth, we hate God, we're enslaved to Satan and estranged from God and objects of his wrath. So what was God's solution? Well, Paul says in verse 14, his purpose was to create in himself, in Jesus, one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. So God's solution was to reconcile people to himself through the death of Jesus and the result of that, Paul says, is the church. The result of that reconciliation between people and God through Jesus' death is the church. He says in verse 19, Consequently, because of Jesus' death, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. That language of citizens and, and people of God's household and built on the foundation of Christ, that language is all an, an Old Testament kind of way of describing the church, the people of God. So in answer to the question, what is the church? Here is Paul's answer. The most fundamental answer to that question is that the church is the collection of people reconciled to God through the death of Jesus. The church is the collection of people reconciled to God through the death of Jesus. Now, if, uh, you're, uh, if you've been a Christian for a long time, that might not seem particularly earth-shattering or particularly novel, but the thing is it's easy to forget but crucial to remember. You see, the church is not a group of people committed to working their way to God. The church is not a group of people who are, who are trying to improve the moral condition of society. They're not a group of people who are committed uh, to, to improving their own moral condition. The church ideally... What makes the church the church? Well, the, what ideally makes the church is that they are the people who have been reconciled to God through the death of Jesus. That what, that's what makes the church the church. That also means that the church is not a collection of perfect people. The church, by definition, is a group of sinners who were estranged from God but have been reconciled to God through the death of Jesus. Now, of course, uh, we discovered a few weeks ago, as I said earlier, that the church uh, on earth this side of Jesus' return will always be a mixed church. It will be a church full of Christians, uh, true Christians and false Christians. It will be a, a church full of Christians who flee sin and pursue righteousness as they call out to Jesus and trust in him and it will be a church of false Christians who are indifferent to sin and who don't call on Jesus but rely on something else. But even, here's the thing, even if you gathered all the true Christians in all the world into one local church, one local gathering, you'd still have a church full of sinners. They'd still have mucked up lives. They'd still make mistakes. What would make them the true church, though, the only thing that would make them the true church is that they've been reconciled to God by the death of Jesus. So that's the, the first thing, I think, really, which, uh, which God tells us about his church, is that it's the collection of people who've been reconciled to him through Jesus' death. 
But it's more than that as well. Paul says uh, that being part of the church is more than that in that it's also an existential reality. <laughs> I, I tried to think of a better word than existential because it's the kind of word that you know, it took me about 15 years to work out what it meant. But, it, but what, Paul is, what I mean is that it's something that changes us at the very level of our existence. That's what it means. It's, it's, it changes our very being. It's not just something that we think about, but it's something that changes us. And that's what Paul is saying about the church as well. Look more closely at what Paul says in verse 15. His purpose, God's purpose, was to create in himself one new man out of the two. So God's purpose, what Paul is saying is that God's purpose was that God would create in Jesus a new humanity. Remember uh, the beginning of chapter 2, the predicament that we all find ourselves in, apart from Christ, is total corruption. We hate God. We're enslaved to sin and to Satan. But here's God's solution, not only to reconcile us to Jesus through Jesus' death, but to create in Jesus a new humanity. Jesus entered our world, he entered the corruption of our world, he entered the corruption of our, of our humanity, of who we are, he entered it, but he overcame it. And in himself he forged that new humanity through his life and his death and his resurrection. Jesus perfected his humanity, he transformed it and he glorified it. You, you see that most clearly, I think, in the, the accounts of Jesus' resurrection where he met with his disciples and the body that he was in, the body that he... That he was raised in was a glorified body. It was, it was different to the one that he had before his death. It was new. It was transformed. And this is what Paul is saying is that if we trust Jesus and if we follow him, we are joined with Christ and we share that new humanity. We share that new life. Jesus makes us new creations. New people. Look at the uh, at verse four of chapter two. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, here it is, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We were spiritually dead, but we've been raised to life. We were corrupted by sin, but we've been created anew in Jesus to love God and follow Jesus. At the end of chapter 2, Paul describes it uh, in different words. He describes it like this. He says, And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. In other words, fundamental to this new creation is the Spirit of God which gives us new birth and makes us into this new humanity in Christ. The Spirit of God recreates us and builds us together 
into the true church of God, which is the body of Christ. Why is that important? Why is that important to understand? It's important, I think, because it means that the church is more than just a matter of ink on paper. It's, you know, being part of the church of God is not just a matter of having membership paperwork, you know, to say that, yes, I belong to the Branch Christian Church in Kings Meadows. That doesn't make you part of the church of God. It's more than just being committed to a, a particular group of people. Uh, it's, it's more than just turning up to the same building every week. It's more than just uh, having your name on a church roster. It's more than just uh, having been baptised. It's more than just having stood up and professed your faith, uh, faith and, and, and given your testimony. Some of those things are important, yes. Some of those things are more important than other things. But belonging to the church of God is so much more than any of that. Belonging to the church of God, the church of God throughout all ages and throughout the whole world is something that God does through the Holy Spirit. It's something that changes our very nature. It's something miraculous, extraordinary, powerful. And it's not something that you or I can do. Fundamentally, belonging to the church of God is something that God has to do because it's God who makes us new. We need to ask God to do that. We need to ask God to reconcile us to himself through the death of Jesus. That's the only way we can receive it, is by asking for it. Asking God to reconcile us to himself through Jesus' death and asking God to make us new creations in Christ Jesus. And the marvellous thing is, the Bible says, is that God won't turn anyone away. Paul says in the letter of Romans, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that's what God says. If we come to him, if we ask him to, to make us part of his true church, to reconcile us to himself through Jesus, to make us new, he will not turn us away. So what is the church? Well, the church is the collection of people reconciled to God through Jesus' death. It's the collection of people recreated through the power of Christ and the Holy Spirit but now we come to the last aspect of the church which Paul talks about uh, in this passage and that is race it's a strange thing uh, again isn't it to talk about I don't know if you picked up on it though as he read through this passage but not only is there this continual emphasis on national distinctions but there's this continual emphasis as well on race and on the reconciliation, not only between God and humanity, but between these two races of people, between the Jews on the one hand and the Gentiles, that is everybody else, on the other hand. Why is that important? Why is it important that those two be reconciled? The key to understanding, uh, I think, what's going on is to understand that in the Old Testament, the people of God was not just a nation, but it was in fact a uh, it was in fact a family of people. It was a race. Uh, they were the people descended from Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. That's why Paul emphasises uh, at the beginning of this passage that the Ephesians were Gentiles by birth. That is, they weren't Jews by birth. Uh, it's also why he points out that the Gentiles weren't uh, or were called uncircumcised because circumcision was the sign that God had given to his people in the Old Testament 
uh, as a sign that they belonged to him, that as a community, as a, as, a, as a people, as a family, they'd received the promises of God and they belonged uh, to the people of God. So if you weren't born into that family, if you weren't physically born into that family, in a sense you weren't really part of the people of God. You could, you could join in and as I said before, people did. People born outside the people of Israel joined but they were always at one level foreigners. They were always at one level strangers. That division was not just a result of the Jews being kind of a bit nasty uh, or parochial but it was defined by the law. It was defined by God. Paul says uh, in verse 14 that the barrier, this dividing wall of hostility between the two, the two camps, the dividing wall was the law with its commandments and regulations. That is, it was God who'd made that division in a sense. But he goes on to say that Jesus has torn down that dividing wall of hostility by doing two things. In the first place, Jesus abolished the law. He put it away. He, he, he abolished the claims that the law had over us. The distinction that the law made between the, the two camps, between the Jews and the Gentiles, between the people descended from Abraham by birth and those not descended from Abraham by birth, Jesus has destroyed that division by destroying the law, by putting it to death in his own body on the cross. That's the first way that he destroyed that hostility. The second way that he did it was by forging that new humanity. Jesus forged a new humanity that was neither, this is the key point, neither Jewish nor Gentile. He forged a new humanity in himself, a new humanity in Christ by which we are sons of God, a new humanity in Christ by which we are members of God's household, not simply members of an earthly family. The Apostle John writes in 1 John, How great is the love that the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. See, it's not just a name. To be the children of God isn't just a, isn't just a label. It's not just, oh, isn't that nice, I'm a, I'm a child of God. No, it's a, it's a reality. It's a fundamental reality. Transformed people, people made new. That is what we are. Paul says in Galatians 3, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptised into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What's the point? The point is this. The identity which the church has as the new humanity in Christ, as the family of God in Jesus, transcends any other identity that we have. The identity which we have as, as God's family transcends any other identity that we have, Jew or Greek, slave or free, employed, unemployed, man or woman, our identity as members of the family of God transcends all of that. But the problem, here is the problem, 
The problem is that in our practice we fail to grasp the absolute centrality of that idea, of that concept. And because of that we end up distorting the church. I wonder if you've ever said uh, or, or sort of thought to yourself, there's no one here my age. You know, you're thinking about the church or you're talking about the church and your complaint is, there's no one here my age. Or, or, or maybe the more noble sentiment, there's no one here my children's age. Maybe you've uh, said to yourself, there's no one here with the same interests as me. There's no one here who understands uh, you know, the, the things that I enjoy or likes the things that I enjoy. But the thing is, those sentiments totally fail to understand what the church is and what the church isn't. I mean, where is, where is that written in the Bible? Where, you know, you, will, you could search the Bible high and low for a description of the church as a place of people your own age. You will not find that. You will not find the Bible as a description of the church as a place of people with the same interests as you. In fact, that kind of sentiment cripples the church. To illustrate how wrong that kind of thinking is, just think about uh, Graham and Linda. Graham and Linda are going to South Sudan, to a country half a world away, to a place where no one has ever heard of uh, AFL, let alone the Hawks footy team. Uh, they're going to a place where the level of education is, is much lower in general than it is in Australia. They're going uh, to a, an entirely different culture with totally different interests and totally different ways of doing things. Imagine if after two weeks in the church in South Sudan, they said, we need to go and find another church. There's nobody here with our interests. There's no one who understands us. There's no one we can talk to about Australian politics or AFL or, or there's no one I can talk to in the church about being a doctor or, or, or whatever else. That would be a ridiculous thing to say, wouldn't it? And not only would it be a ridiculous thing to say, it would be an utter betrayal of their ministry and of the Church of God. And if it would be an utter betrayal of their ministry and the Church of God for them to do that in South Sudan, why would it be any different for us to do that when we say it about our church in Australia? One of the reasons that ideas of same age and same interests become so powerful is because we forget that the church is a forum for our love and ministry. We forget that and instead we become so preoccupied with what the church is doing for us. And you might say, well, shouldn't I be getting something out of the church? But remember the shape of gospel ministry that we looked at last week. What was the shape of gospel ministry. What do we get out of gospel ministry? Of our contribution to the church? Well, we, what we get out of it is hardship and oppression. What others get out of our contribution to the church and to the family of God is that they find life 
through Christ and come to maturity in him. Don Carson writes in his book, uh, Love in Hard Places, he writes about the church, ideally the church itself is not made up of natural friends, it's made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs or anything else of that sort. Christians come together not because they form a natural collection but because they've all been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him a common allegiance. They are a band of natural enemies who love each other for Jesus' sake. In another book, I hate to quote Carson again, but in another book, uh, he provides uh, an account of that reality uh, of natural enemies coming together under that common allegiance to Jesus Christ. He quotes from an article in the National Review. In 1942, Jacob de Shazer was a bombardier in the Doolittle Raid over Japan. I don't know if anyone watched Pearl Harbour. It was actually on last night. At the end of the movie Pearl Harbour, uh, the Americans send the Doolittle Raid back as retaliation for the Pearl Harbour attacks and they basically decimate uh, Tokyo. But uh, this man, Jacob de Shazer, was a bombardier in that raid, that Doolittle raid over Japan. And with four other crewmen he bailed out. Two of uh, those crewmen were executed. The others spent the rest of the war, three years and four months, in prison camps. They were beaten, tortured and starved. At some point, de Shazer asked for a Bible. They brought him one, allowing him to keep it for three weeks. I eagerly began to read its pages, he later wrote. I discovered that God had given me new spiritual eyes and that when I looked at the enemy officers and guards who had starved and beaten my companions and me so cruelly, I found my bitter hatred for them was changed to a loving pity. He survived and dedicated his life to missionary work in Japan. One of his converts was Mitsuo Fushida, the lead pilot in the Pearl Harbour attack. Fushida became an evangelist. Jacob de Shazer died in Salem, Oregon, aged 95. It's an illustration of the hostility and the dividing wall broken down by the gospel of Jesus Christ. The irony is, I think, that we believe that when it comes to big cases. You know, I don't think we... In a sense, I don't think we struggle to believe that enemies on either side of a world war could be reconciled through Christ. In one sense, I think we find that easy to understand. What we find hard to understand is that the same gospel can reconcile us with very small differences. One of the greatest experiences in any church I've ever been in uh, was when I was working in Olveston, Before I came here, I was part of a Bible study group on Thursday nights with a group made up almost entirely of 70-plus-year-old widows. That was my main Bible study group. (laughs) The only thing that we had in common was a common love and commitment to Christ. We never went to the movies together. We never talked about arts 
uh, or politics or the footy. We never talked about music. But for two hours a week, we'd meet together. We'd have a cup of tea and coffee and we'd study the Bible. And for two hours a week, we'd love each other and we'd be committed to each other. And for two hours a week, in the most concrete of ways, the gospel would overcome the differences that the world said was too great to overcome. What is the church? The church is a vast array of all kinds of different people, with all kinds of different interests and all kinds of different backgrounds, a people who've been reconciled to God and to each other through the death of Jesus Christ and people who now share in Jesus' new humanity. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the church. Thank you for the fact that through the death of Jesus we are no longer your enemies but now your children. Lord, thank you that through Jesus' death we have escaped your judgment and your wrath and have received life and immortality. Help us to love you as our Father for what you've done. Help us to love Christ as our Saviour. Help us to love your Spirit who dwells in us and strengthens us and draws us closer to you every day and every hour. (coughs) Father, please help us not only to love you but to love your church and your people. Help us to love those who are different from you but who love Christ as much as we do. Father, forgive us uh, for our lovelessness. Forgive us for those people who've left our church because we haven't loved them. Lord, forgive us for the times when we've turned the church into uh, a personal crusade uh, or uh, into a community of people intended to serve us. Father, please help us to love your church as Jesus' body purchased with his blood and made into his likeness. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.